Good afternoon. This is Quintus Curtius. Welcome back to the podcast. And the subject of this podcast is going to be people just want to be left alone. People just want to be left alone. And we'll be talking a little bit about this theme. I've got some interesting ideas on how to present it. But before I do that, I just make a quick movie recommendation. If you get a chance, see this movie, Arctic, starring Mads Mikkelsen, the great Mads Mikkelsen, who's, uh, in my view, one of the great contemporary male actors out there, one of the few who's not uh, just... who seems to retain his individuality and, and not be totally subsumed in the Hollywood nonsense. So if you get a chance, check out this movie. It's a very stark, bare-bones film, really about a man's ordeal who crash lands on a plane in in, uh, in the Arctic and is forced to trek his way out of that predicament, uh, carrying another wounded person, a woman who was a, a pilot in a, a rescue helicopter. So it's a very, very good movie. The type of movie that they should make more of. They really should be making more movies like this instead of the complete dreck that they turn out presently. But that's a subject for another discussion. Right now, let's talk about people just want to be left alone. And, you know, I I got the idea to do this podcast just out of just a sense of real exasperation and maybe frustration, exhaustion with seeing how the mainstream media, the national media, seems to always try to whip up people into a frenzy over issues that are not really issues or issues that are not worthy of national attention. And it seems like that they do this because they have no other way of selling their product. As we all know, everything is with them is about sales, about attention, about clicks, about reads. And they depend on their survival and on their existence for a continued stream of outrage, anger, resentment, uh, fomenting conflict, agitation, incitement. And it just never ends. It just never ends. Every time you turn on, and, and CNN, I, I think, is the is the absolute worst example of this. There's some insignificant story that's elevated on the front page as if it's some indicator of how people really are or, or an indication of how things are really on the ground. And it's always some grievance about somebody was insulted, somebody was mean to someone else, someone's doing something to someone else. And it just seems like the whole game, well, not seems like, the whole game is to just promote constant, unrelenting uh, gender and identity politics. And it's very harmful. And, you know, I don't usually get into politics, you know, because it's just such a, it's just a frustrating subject. But um, you have to, at some point, you have to comment on it. And I think the only way to really maintain your, your sense of balance is to is to just disengage from it. Do not do not read it. Do not react to it. Do not listen to it. Because if you do, you're going to fill your mind with anger and grievances and frustration. Because it's 
goal is to manipulate people. Its goal is to set everybody against everybody. That's the that's their little game. That's the media's little game is to set everyone against everyone else so that they can sit back and laugh and continue to do what they've been doing, which is to steal uh, steal the resources of, of the country and to profit from everyone else's disenfranchisement. That's the game. That's the game. And we've chronicled this in previous podcasts on the plutocratic insurgency. And again, these, these large media conglomerates are all owned by by some of the, the largest major corporations in the country. So obviously, there is a, um, there's a profit motive there. And they don't care about the domestic harmony. They don't care about domestic felicity. They don't care about promoting uh, uh, a strong, cohesive national spirit. These are the last things in their mind. They don't care about that. They don't care. There's zero sense of patriotic duty with them. Zero. Absolute zero. And so that's really why good men and good women, I think, are checking out, are just not listening anymore, because you can't. You really, really can't. And and I was reminded from just thinking about this recently, in the wake of all these media hoaxes and scams and lies, I'm not even going to dignify them by discussing them. You know you can surmise what they are, what I'm referring to, but I'm not even going to discuss them because they're not even worthy of discussion. But I was reminded of an account written by a Roman historian in the 5th century named uh, Priscus, Priscus, P-R-I-S-C-U-S. And he was a very, he's a very little known historian outside of specialist circles. But he was, he was someone who um, he accompanied his friend Maximin, who was an ambassador to Attila the Hun. And in uh, AD 448, he accompanied his friend to the court of Attila the Hun. Very, very fascinating account. And I discovered this in a book that uh, was written by the historian J.B. Burry who was a, a, a historian of the last century on the later Roman Empire. And it's a very, very fascinating account. And he translated this short account of, of, of Priscus, Priscus's sojourn with his friend to the court of Attila the Hun for a diplomatic mission. And it's very interesting. I don't have time to read all of it. It's several pages long, but I can read certain excerpts of it, which I will read and then we can uh, discuss them talk about them, and we can examine and see what they say. All right. So a little bit of background here. Priscus was traveling with his friend to the court of Attila, and he had to pass through certain small villages on the way. And he had a he had an encounter with a man uh, in these outlying regions, these, quote, barbarian regions that were beyond the the frontiers of the Roman Empire. Again, this is A.D. 443 or 448, let me see. 448. 448 A.D. All right. And um, this this period of history is not very well known, obviously. There was a lot going on. It was a very momentous period in the history of Western Europe, and it, it needs to be understood more. But 
Um, if you get it, if you're interested in these things, you really should do what you can to find out about it. But in any case, Priscus is passing through this village, and he encounters someone. And I'll read on here. When I arrived at the house, along with the attendants who carried the gifts, I found the doors closed and had to wait until someone should come out and announce our arrival. As I waited and walked up and down in front of the enclosure which surrounded the house, a man, whom from his Scythian dress I took for a barbarian, came up and addressed me in Greek, with the word kaire, or hail. I was surprised at a Scythian speaking Greek, for the subjects of the Huns, swept together from various lands, speak, besides their own barbarous tongues, either Hunnic or Gothic, or, as many have commercial dealings with the Western Romans, Latin. But none of them speak Greek easily, except captives from the Thracian or Illyrian seacoast, and these last are easily known to any stranger by their torn garments and the squalor of their heads, as men who have met with a reverse. This man, on the contrary, resembled, resembled a well-to-do Scythian, being well-dressed and having his hair cut in a circle after Scythian fashion. Having returned his salutation, I asked him who he was and whence he had come into a foreign land and adopted Scythian life. When he asked me why I wanted to know, I told him that his Hellenic speech had prompted my curiosity. Then he smiled and said that he was born a Greek and had gone as a merchant to Viminacium on the Danube, where he stayed a long time and married a very rich wife. But the city fell a prey to the barbarians, and he was stripped of his prosperity and on account of his riches was allotted to Onegesius in the division of the spoils, as it was the custom among the Scythians for their chiefs to reserve for themselves the rich prisoners. Having fought bravely against the Romans and the Akatiri, he had paid the spoils and won to his master, and so obtained freedom. He then married a barbarian wife and had children, and had the privilege of eating at the table of Onegesius. He considered his new life among the Scythians better than his old life among the Romans, and the reason he gave was as follows. After war, the Scythians live in inactivity, enjoying what they have got, and not at all, or very little, harassed. The Romans, on the other hand, are in the first place very liable to perish in war as they have to rest their hopes of safety on others and are not allowed, on account of their tyrants, to use arms. And those who use them are injured by the cowardice of their generals who cannot support the conduct of war. But the condition of the subjects in time of peace is far more grievous than the evils of war, for the exaction of the taxes is very severe and unprincipled men inflict injuries on others because the laws are practically not valid against all classes. A transgressor who belongs to the wealthy classes is not punished for his injustice, while a poor man who does not understand business undergoes the legal penalty. That is, if he does not depart this life before the trial, so long is the course of lawsuits protracted and so much money is expended on them. The climax of the misery is to have to pay in order to obtain justice. For no one will give a court to the injured man unless he pay a sum of money to the judge and the judge's clerks. In reply to this attack on the empire, 
I asked him to be good enough to listen with patience to the other side of the question. The creators of the Roman Republic, I said, who were wise and good men, in order to prevent things from being done at haphazard, made one class of men guardians of the laws and appointed another class to the profession of arms, who were to have no other object than to be always ready for battle and to go forth to war without dread, as though to their ordinary exercise, having by practice, practice exhausted all their, all their fear beforehand. Others again were assigned to attend to the cultivation of the ground to support both themselves and those who fight in their defense by contributing the military corn supply. To those who protect the interests of the litigants, a sum of money is paid by the latter, just as a payment is made by the farmers to the soldiers. Is it not fair to support him who assists and requite him for his kindness? The support of the horse benefits the horseman. Those who spend money on a suit and lose it in the end cannot fairly put it down to anything but the injustice of their case. And as to the long time spent on lawsuits, that is due to concern for justice, that judges may not fail in passing correct judgments by having to give sentence offhand. It is better that they should reflect and conclude the case more tardily than by judging in a hurry they should both injure man and transgress against the deity, the institutor of justice. The Romans treat their servants better than the king of the Scythians treats his subjects. They deal with them as fathers and teachers, admonishing them to abstain from evil and follow the lines of conduct which they have esteemed honorable. They reprove them for their errors like their own children. They are not allowed, like the Scythians, to inflict death on them. They have numerous ways of conferring freedom. They can manumit not only during life, but also by their wills, and the testamentary wishes of a Roman in regard to his property are law. My interlocutor shed tears and confessed that the laws and constitution of the Romans were fair, but deplored that the governors, not possessing the spirit of former generations, were ruining the estate. Were ruining the state. All right. Well, that's the quote. That's the quote of this interesting dialogue that Priscus had with this. Uh, Greek by birth, who had gone to live with the Scythian barbarians. And it's a very interesting exchange. And what can we conclude from that? Let's talk about that a little bit. So what we have here is a, a man, this Greek, who essentially was frustrated with his life. He had lived, uh, obviously he'd grown up in Greek-speaking lands, and he had decided that he had had enough he had had enough of the bureaucracy, of the nonsense, of the propaganda, of the foolishness, of the, the unrelenting control and regimentation of Roman society. And he had gone to jump the border, so to speak, and to live, an exp to live as an expatriate in Scythian lands. And he basically gave his reasons for doing so. He said, as, as you heard, he said, look, basically, I'm more free here. Nobody messes with me. I can do what I want. I'm not subject to arbitrary laws and excessive bureaucracy. And it was interesting that he had so many complaints about the legal system. And then you have uh, Priscus, of course, the Roman, Roman aristocrat, who's, of course, going to defend his own system, basically by saying that, well, look, things may be slow and taxes may be high, but we have to do that to ensure that justice has been done. And you have to be conscious of the fact that the 
the emoluments of civilization are better than the the habiliments of barbarism which you ha currently have now and the scythian obviously decided uh, that well the greek the, the greek living in in scythian lands decided not to continue the debate but he basically put his head down and and shed some tears and said look i the present generals and governors are not as good as their predecessors and I, and I think this is a valid point i think what what he was trying to say was look i understand the benefits of civilization i get that i understand all that but the government now has reached a point where it's just completely oppressing us it won't leave us alone it's it's a situation and they have leaders that are not living up to the standards of their forefathers they're not living up to the standards set by previous generations and that's the reason why he chose to live as an expatriate. He wanted to be left alone. People just want to be left alone. And I thought that it was very interesting reading this little exchange because I think there's so many lessons there that we can transfer to our own modern era. You know, you often talk to people who are, who, are, who are living or have lived as expatriates, and you find out from talking to them that they simply just got to a point where they just wanted to get away from the excessive control, the excessive bureaucracy, the oppressive nature of the societies that they came from, which are almost always Western or maybe Far Eastern. And they just want to live more freely in the third world, I suppose, the modern third world would be what we would today, well, I suppose what the Romans might consider, quote, barbaric. And again, I use that phrase with um, with great uh, trepidation because in some ways what people consider barbaric is actually more humane in many ways than than what we see in the so-called developed countries. But in any case, again, that's a, that's a separate debate, a separate discussion. But I think that's I think that's an important lesson I think that we can we can take away. People have had these sentiments for the throughout history. You know, this this conversation took place in 448 AD and you could have very easily had this very same conversation if you met maybe an expatriate in in Thailand or Colombia or Nicaragua, or Brazil, Mexico, any anywhere. Anywhere people who just got tired of dealing with the nonsense they got tired of dealing with the oppressive uptight rigid controlling nature of the societies that they came from and just had had enough it had had enough now that's a debate we can certainly have i don't think you know i think the this whole debate over the benefits versus drawbacks of living as an expatriate that's a whole other discussion um that um, that can be had, and it's probably better had by people who have actually lived the experience. I mean, I've I've lived abroad for several years in different places, but I've never actually, you know, been an, an expatriate who've lived abroad for a, a greatly extended period of time. And I think that there are there are arguments that you can make both ways. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure really where I come out on that on that debate. I think there are some arguments for it. There are some arguments against it. And maybe, maybe some sort of balance is the best solution. Some sort of, sort of solution where you have one foot planted one place and one foot planted in another place. But in any case, think about that. Reflect on that conversation. Realize that people just want to be left alone, 
And I think what you can do in the meantime to preserve your mental balance and to preserve your peace of mind is to disengage, to unplug yourself from these oppressive stories and issues, quote-unquote, that the media wants to whip you up about. And do your own thing. Live your own life. Do your own thing. Get away from the dorks. Because therein will you find freedom and peace of mind. So I think that will wrap things up here. Um, That'll be all for today. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.